0: M S W Media.
1: News with swearing. Jelly beans, jelly beans, jelly beans, jelly beans.
0: Hello and welcome to The Daily Beans. I'm your host, A.G., and today we have an amazing interview with the author of Proof of Collusion and Proof of Conspiracy, Seth Abramson. And we discuss the House Oversight Committee's report on the Middle East Marshall Plan, which is Trump's plan to build reactors in Saudi Arabia, and, of course, the Grand Bargain. Um, This will really give you a big picture sense of how many foreign pots Trump and his family have their fingers in and just how compromised the entire family is. The original air date of this interview was August 4th, 2019. I hope you enjoy it. Joining us today is curatorial journalist and author of Proof of Collusion and his new book, Proof of Conspiracy. Please welcome back Seth Abramson. Seth, thanks for coming back to Mueller She Wrote.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So uh, this week, a little report came out from the House Oversight Committee on the Middle East Marshall Plan. And I have to say, it's interesting for us when reports like this come out for for, you know, curatorial journalists like you or I uh, or the Mueller report, for that matter, because it kind of puts in writing what we've been talking about for for us for about two years, for you much longer. Uh, You were on this story really early on, and I don't think we picked it up until the end of 2017 when we started but can you give us, a first of all, your your top line uh, thoughts about the release of this report and then a little background information going, you know, on the Mayflower meeting, uh, who was there and why it was important?
1: Sure. Well, I was very happy to see this new report uh, from the Oversight Committee because it focuses attention on some individuals who have not yet received enough attention, at least in the public eye. You know, people like Thomas Barrick, one of Donald Trump's two best friends, the other being Howard Lorber, who have been under investigation, at least in the case of uh, Thomas Barrick, have been under investigation by the feds for some time, but we haven't heard that much about them in the public. So a report like this focuses some attention on them and on what they were up to, and also some renewed attention on Michael Flynn, which is certainly warranted now that he appears to be making noise about not being happy with the deal that he signed and uh, his new attorney, uh, Dina Powell, causing substantial problems with the cooperation deal that he had such that he didn't even testify in one of the trials he was going to testify in. But one thing I would say, though, about this report is that it really focuses primarily on what happened after Donald Trump um, was inaugurated, which makes a lot of sense because it's the Oversight Committee. And so they're supposed to be looking at what the presidential administration has done. But the story of the report and the events in the report, and frankly, the story of the Mayflower speech really begins not just before 2017, but before 2016, all the way back in 2015.
0: Yeah, and so can you go a little bit into that because I know that there was uh, this this report just isn't about Saudi Arabia; it's about Russian sanctions. And now we have emails showing that Flynn was communicating, as you said, as early as 2015, involving Russia and Saudi Arabia. What can you tell us about that, and kind of uh, maybe piece together a little timeline for us about those emails in 2015, leading up to the Mayflower meeting?
1: Sure. So the uh, the so called Mayflower speech happened at the Mayflower Hotel on April twenty seventh, twenty sixteen. It was Donald Trump's first big foreign policy speech, and that was kind of the moment when uh, I guess I uh, became most interested in curatorial journalism in a in a public way and on social media, because looking into that particular speech and the VIP event that preceded it, just Um, exposed for me, and I think for a lot of people, a number of loose threads, things that just didn't make sense about this big coming out party for Donald Trump in in terms of being a politician who actually had a foreign policy. And so I have to give full credit to the many media outlets that maybe in far-flung places and maybe without a lot of follow-up were nevertheless exposing some of the elements uh, of this event on April 27th, 2016. And when you started to pull on those loose threads, Who attended the VIP event before the speech? um, Why did the speech happen in the first place? Uh, You know, the people who were invited, the ambassadors who were invited to the VIP event, who hosted the event, you started to pull on these loose threads and you discovered an entire story that really was then broken up uh, or broken open in a serious way um, by uh, ProPublica, the the organization and media outlet that exposed this, quote unquote, Saudi nuclear deal. We've all heard of the Iran nuclear deal that many of the Sunni Arab nations uh, in the Middle East were not happy about. But we found out that there was this deal that Michael Flynn was working on in 2015 alongside a company that at the time was called ACU. And so what Michael Flynn, who attends the Mayflower speech in April of 2016, what he spends 2015 doing is visiting four countries, uh, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Israel and Egypt that were central to this plan he was working on with ACU to effectively nuclearize the Middle East by bringing nuclear power, more than 30 new nuclear power plants, to countries across the Middle East and doing so, and this is important, uh, in in a way that would um, violate what had conventionally been what's called the gold standard or the one-two-three agreement that governed any transition of nuclear technology from the United States to other countries, which is that those countries would agree not to use that nuclear technology to um, build and design nuclear weapons. And so the ACU-Flynn plan not only would have brought nuclear power to the Middle East, um, a number of nations in the Middle East, particularly Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates, but it would have led to uh, a nuclear arms race between Iran and those countries that could have gotten extremely dangerous. And frankly, if it still happens, could well be very dangerous for the entire world in the next 10 years.
0: Um, a s- side shoot before we talk about the Flynn emails with uh, Barrick and all Malik uh, trying to sort of formulate this plan, um, or at least uh, to me, it seemed like they were lobbying uh, Trump to adjust his policy and the RNC um, uh, platform. But what does this sort of have to do with um, that? I mean, when we start bringing in how you have to relieve Russian sanctions to have this plan go forward, and then we take a look at things like the Seychelles meeting with Prince uh, and and Nader, uh, these are all tied together, aren't they, Seth?
1: They are, and and one of the things that's uh, things that's been frustrating about, um, I mean, I just wrote a, a book on this, essentially on this Middle East deal that Flynn was working on, called Proof of Conspiracy. And one of the things that was frustrating in talking on social media about the fact that I was writing this book and giving a sort of preview of some of its major events and characters and topics is that people would immediately say, "Wow, you know, everyone is now switching from Russia to focus on other things." They're switching from discussing collusion with the Russians over the topic of sanctions to talk about completely different, unrelated countries and unrelated events. And in fact, as you just said, that's not at all the case. So, so let me break down in as simple uh, terms as I can the deal that Michael Flynn was working on with ACU in 2015. The idea that Michael Flynn and ACU had was that the U.S., U.S. companies and the U.S. government could work with the Russians to build nuclear reactors across the Middle East, particularly in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates. And the idea they had is that they could get the uh, US ally, the chief US ally in the Middle East, Israel, to come on board with that plan, even if it meant the possibility of new nuclear powers arising in the Arab world. If the Saudis and the Emiratis promised to help Israel, number one, counter Iran, and number two, uh, get its way in the ongoing Palestinian dispute. OK, that was what the Israelis felt they would get out of the deal.
0: And and that has a lot to do with uh, one of those two uh, issues that Mueller brought up in his report with Flynn, where they were lobbying the U.N. Security Council to either delay or lobbying other countries to vote against the resolution banning the. Uh, West Bank occupations by Israel. Is that also
1: part of this? Absolutely. It's a great example of how um, this plan that Flynn and ACU created and took around the world pitching to leaders was, in fact, adopted by the Trump campaign. By the time you get to the presidential transition, you have Donald Trump calling the Egyptian leader, el-Sisi, directly and telling him he needs to withdraw a resolution in the United Nations that the israelis are strongly against regarding the building of new settlements uh in israel and immediately the egyptians withdraw it because what you have by december of 2016 is this as i have termed it a a grand bargain or what you might also term, and we can talk about why i call it this the red sea conspiracy and the egyptians are particularly el sisi members of that conspiracy and they know that the israelis have to be placated or else this deal can't go forward. But what I also want to mention is you talked about Russian sanctions and how that factors into the Flynn-ACU deal that he was working on in 2015. Some people might wonder, well, why would Russia agree to work alongside the US to build nuclear reactors uh, throughout the Middle East when the relationship between the US and Russia has been not good since the sanctions were imposed following Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea in the spring of 2014? And the answer is exactly what you said. The only way, and Michael Flynn knew this, ACU knew this, the only way Russia would agree to be part of this incredibly lucrative Saudi nuclear deal is if the future U.S. president agreed to drop all sanctions on Russia. And there was only one candidate in 2015 on the Republican side or the Democratic side who was willing to drop all sanctions on Russia. And therefore, there was only one candidate who really could be a partner with these countries and with Michael Flynn and with ACU as of August of 2015, when Michael Flynn and Donald Trump have their first fateful meeting at Trump Tower.
0: Okay, so, so both violations of the Logan Act, which weren't obviously uh, prosecuted under uh, the Mueller investigation that, that Flynn committed during the transition, which is the UN Security Council interference votes on Israeli occupation on the West Bank, and the Kisly Act calls about sanctions and not responding to sanctions, both of those now make 100% sense in the light of this agreement.
1: That, that's correct. But, but here's the even scarier thing, right, is that we talk about the Logan Act uh, and it's, it's a federal crime to violate the Logan Act. And of course, for those listening who don't know, uh, you can't as a private citizen negotiate U.S. foreign policy um, under color of authority, pretending that you have authority to do so when in fact you do not. Um, frankly, if you even implicitly are negotiating in a way that suggests that you have some sort of authority, even if you don't explicitly claim that authority, that's illegal as well. And the reason for that is exactly what happened here. Michael Flynn didn't start violating the Logan Act during the presidential transition in 2016. He started violating the federal Logan Act, committing crimes by wrongly negotiating U.S. policy as soon as he became a national security advisor to Donald Trump in August of 2015. So let me mention something quickly about that meeting. First of all, let's understand that Donald Trump has lied about every part of that August 2015 meeting that he had with Michael Flynn. He first claimed that it never happened and that he didn't meet Michael Flynn until 2016. Then when everyone pushed him on this and said, well, you definitely did meet with him and Michael Flynn said that you met with him, Trump lied again and said, well, he contacted me and he wanted to meet with me. Michael Flynn has said that that's not true. In fact, the Trump campaign reached out to Michael Flynn for reasons we don't know, but I think we have some indication of, to say Donald Trump really wants to talk to you about your vision for the future of international um, geopolitics, I guess, for, for lack of a better term. Once that meeting happens in August of 2015, it was supposed to go for 30 minutes it went for 90 minutes. And from that point on, Michael Flynn is an advisor to Donald Trump on national security. And it is shortly after that particular meeting, Michael Flynn has already gone to Israel and Egypt prior to August of 2015, that he did in June of 2015. But after that meeting, now that he's advising Donald Trump, he goes to Saudi Arabia in October of 2015, and he goes to Russia in December of 2015. And in both instances, He is representing himself because he wants to make money off the Saudi nuclear deal and also ACU. But what he is positing is a new U.S. foreign policy, and he is doing so under the color of being Donald Trump's top national security advisor. So the promise there is implicit, and I'm sure, frankly, in the private conversations it was explicit, that if you help Donald Trump get elected... You will earn yourself a new U.S. foreign policy that will be lucrative for the Russians because sanctions will be dropped. It will be lucrative for the Israelis because they'll get help in the Palestinian dispute and help countering Iran. It'll be lucrative for the Saudis and the Egyptians and the Emiratis because they'll get nuclear power and ultimately nuclear weapons with which to counter Iran. Everyone's going to benefit. And what is essentially being negotiated is U.S. foreign policy illegally. On Donald Trump's behalf in 2015, and here's what I'll sort of leave this little monologue with and say that the countries that end up illegally aiding Donald Trump in securing election in 2016 are all the countries that Michael Flynn visited and all the countries that are part of this grand bargain.
0: Yes. And not to mention everybody at that Mayflower meeting uh, either met with Russians or or people from those countries were ambassadors to those countries or lied about it. For example, I know we know Jeff Sessions was there and one of the reactors that was going to be kind of the the test reactor for these reactors being built in Saudi Arabia was going to be built in Alabama, his home state. And of course, we know Flynn's deputy secretary, KT McFarland, was uh, pretty much placed there by a guy named Bud McFarlane, and uh, and Manafort, right? So I mean, this is all, it, w- once you look at it through the lens of this grand bargain, as you call it, everything and everyone's actions make 100% sense. Because before we were sort of trying to piece it together under the guise of Russian interference only, but not until you bring in this entire grand bargain does it make full-throated sense uh, of why they're all acting this way.
1: Well, that's exactly right. And, and that's the the aspect that was the biggest disappointment in the Mueller report. Uh, Because Robert Mueller didn't look at um, collusion with any country other than um, Russia, and because he didn't frankly even look at any collusion, um, or I should say the term that, that he used, conspiracy or coordination, collusion would have been a much broader focus than the one he had. So he had a narrow focus on Russia, a narrow focus on conspiracy and coordination, And he only really looked at whether the Trump campaign had a before the fact agreement with Russian military intelligence or the Internet Research Agency, a troll factory uh, sponsored by the Kremlin, prior to the um, hacking campaign by the GRU and the interference campaign in terms of uh, domestic disinformation and psyops by the Internet. A research agency. And he was not able to find beyond reasonable doubt that there was that sort of conspiracy. Had he just broadened his focus slightly to think about other crimes that are undergirded by collusive activity and other nations that were involved in what the Trump campaign was up to on national security issues, he would have seen what we can now see. And, and you mentioned the Mayflower uh, speech as being sort of a touchstone moment. It really was. Uh, as soon as Michael Flynn is hired by the Trump campaign, formally. He had been working with them for months. But as soon as he's hired formally in January of 2016, the Trump campaign starts to build out its national security team, putting Jeff Sessions, who you just mentioned, in charge of that team. And it spends the next 45 days or so putting together that team. Carter Page is the first person brought on even before Jeff Sessions. George Papadopoulos comes on board, J.D. Gordon, other people that we've heard about. That team is the team that ultimately does the negotiating of the grand bargain alongside Paul Manafort. It is also during this period, February and March of 2016, that Paul Manafort gets involved in the campaign. And it's really important for us to understand that that only happens because of Donald Trump's best friend, Thomas Barrick, who has numerous connections to the United Arab Emirates, whose um, leadership is literally thick as thieves with the royal family of Saudi Arabia. And Barrick is the one who gets Manafort his job. Manafort comes on board at the very end of March 2016, when the National Security Committee that um, was initiated after Flynn's hire has its first meeting in Trump International Hotel in D.C. on March 31st of 2016. And now, by the moment you have the Mayflower speech on April 26th of 2016, you have all the pieces in place. You have Thomas Barrick using his connections to the UAE, to get Yusuf Alotaiba, the Emirati ambassador, close to Jared Kushner. You have the Israeli ambassador to the United States, Ron Dermer, who now has become a close advisor to Jared Kushner. You have Dmitri Symes, who is a quote-unquote friend of Vladimir Putin and runs the Center for the National Interest, which hosts the Mayflower speech, as a regular advisor to Jared Kushner. And you have Paul Manafort in place as the de facto campaign manager.
0: Yeah, and of course we have uh, Barrack and Gates running the Trump inaugural, where all sorts of money, via just one example, Sam Patton, uh, bringing money in from uh, foreign interests uh, to funneling it, basically using straw donors to the inaugural, and of course the inaugural made more than twice uh, of uh, the previously largest inaugural under Barack Obama. So that's being investigated now, uh, and so. Uh, two other questions. Uh, this is, I, I know this is a multi-part question, but do you think all of this information, all this, uh, which I would consider either counterintelligence information or just what wasn't covered by the Mueller report, do you think Sally Yates uh, knew about that when she ran to the White House to advise uh, Trump about Flynn? Uh, and then also, I have to wonder if Judge Sullivan had all this information.
1: So that's a good question. I mean, obviously, neither of us can give an absolute answer to that question. I would say this, though. Um, the, The history of counterintelligence in terms of the FBI's counterintelligence division and, of course, the work done by the CIA, and we saw this going as far back as September 11th of 2001, is that these agencies tend to hold the intelligence that they gather closer to the vest than might be wise for U.S. national security. What you had beginning in 2016, in the summer of 2016, were at least two counterintelligence investigations that were focused not just, and this is important to note, not just on Russia, but they were also focused on George Papadopoulos and his interactions with Israel. So you did, even at that time in the summer of 2016, have some focus being paid to, or focus, uh, attention being focused on not just Russia, but on other countries. Whether or not that information got to the, the acting attorney general in January of 2017, I don't know. I certainly think that she had a very broad understanding and view of what Michael Flynn was up to in terms of the sanctions question with Russia and in terms of his um, the presidential transition team's contact with the Israelis once he had his interview with the FBI and revealed some of what's going on, but you, I think, put put your finger on exactly what the problem is here. Um, the oversight committee can look at what happened after the inauguration. You have federal prosecutors um, in the Eastern District of New York and elsewhere who are looking at activities that occurred during the presidential transition, and the question becomes: Who is still looking at uh, multinational collusion that occurred? between the Trump campaign and several countries prior to election day. And the answer there appears to be, now that Mueller has closed his investigation, the FBI counterintelligence division. They're the ones who have that information. They're the ones who have created presumably a lengthy report or at least a a running case file on that issue. And so it's incumbent now upon Congress to find the appropriate committee, presumably the Intelligence Committee, to get that report and to get that case file so that we're not just looking at the presidential transition or just looking at what happened after the inauguration, but the full story. Because I know from having been a criminal investigator myself and a criminal defense attorney as well for many years, you can't simply start at the end of a story, um, the, the second to last chapter or the last chapter, and ignore everything that came before and understand what you're looking at.
0: This is AG, and you're listening to our August 4th interview with Seth Abramson. We'll be right back with more from the author of Proof of Conspiracy right after this message. This helping of the Daily Beans is brought to you by Ancestry DNA. Ancestry DNA is a truly meaningful gift with the power to connect families over the holidays. Every family has a story, and Ancestry DNA can reveal our origins and provide historical details that bring unique family stories to life. Only Ancestry DNA uses the world's largest family history database to give a deeper and more detailed DNA story. Ancestry DNA doesn't just tell you what countries you're from, but they can also pinpoint specific regions within them, giving you insightful geographic detail about your history. Trace the paths of your recent ancestors and learn how or why and why your family moved from place to place around the world. From discovering origins in over 500 regions to the most connections to living relatives, no other DNA test delivers such a unique and interactive experience. When I got my results back, I learned I'm 96% Western European, and I paired my results with the Ancestry family tree and found out I'm related to some old English dude named Ethelred the Unready, which speaks volumes about my family. Who knows what you'll discover at Ancestry DNA? It's a gift that can bring us closer to our origins and to each other. See how the details of your family's past can spark new conversations with your family. This year, while visiting during the holidays, I'm sharing the results from my Ancestry DNA kit, and I'm going to ask about how many of my relatives are unready as well. Save big on Ancestry DNA with special holiday pricing and spark meaningful conversations around the holiday dinner table. Give the gift that can unwrap their history. Head to my URL at ancestry.com/dailybeans to get your Ancestry DNA kit on sale today. That's ancestry.com/dailybeans. And now back to our interview with Seth Abramson. Yeah, and then, of course, the problem then becomes, as uh, I've I've heard uh, James Baker and Andrew McCabe address, is that when you have moles in the Intelligence Committee, like Nunes and Ratcliffe, how do you brief them on this without giving all of that information then to one of the targets or at least subjects of the investigation, Donald Trump himself. It's like and and everyone's just sort of at least there might be an answer that they can't give us. But that's where uh, I start to get freaked out is who do you tell?
1: Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest with you, uh, as I was doing research for proof of conspiracy, I found myself getting freaked out early uh, and often. And and frankly, as people will know who followed my Twitter feed, uh, I get pretty freaked out starting in 2013 when Donald Trump goes to Moscow for the Miss Universe pageant, and he's talking about his presidential ambitions and presidential politics with Kremlin agents there, and he's negotiating a business deal that he ultimately signs a letter of intent for, uh, and he negotiates that deal with the help of Kremlin agents. I mean, I'm freaked out at, at that point. But what, what really I think in the story that, that people are, are focused on right now Um, Where that really starts, to me, is that meeting in August of 2015 between Donald Trump and Michael Flynn at Trump Tower that Donald Trump felt he had to lie about and that went three times longer than it was supposed to. And we know that Michael Flynn's entire vision of the future of international geopolitics at that point in time when he goes to that meeting was focused on this Saudi nuclear deal which he saw as a way to solve all the geopolitical conflict between the U.S. and Russia, solve the Israeli-Palestinian dispute, and solve the Iran problem. So you can imagine, even though we have to regard him by any lights as a, a radical, you can imagine from Michael Flynn's viewpoint that the one thing worth talking about in terms of foreign policy and national security on August, 25th, uh, August of 2015 when he visits with Donald Trump is this single plan that he and ACU have developed that solve three of the biggest geopolitical problems on earth. Now, the question is, how did it come to pass that Donald Trump is the one who invites Michael Flynn to Trump Tower? Who is telling him, you've got to talk to this guy, he's got some good ideas, such that, by the way, those ideas end up in Donald Trump's public rally speeches in the fall of 2015. So clearly he picks up Flynn's idea in August 2015 or shortly thereafter. And I think a, a couple things that are important to note here is of course, Thomas Barrick is his best friend at that point in August of 2015. We know that Thomas Barrick becomes incredibly involved in the Trump campaign as soon as Trump announces in June of 2015. He basically drops everything at Colony Capital to help Donald Trump become elected. We now know because he thought he would personally be enriched significantly if this sort of a Middle East deal, Middle East Marshall Plan went through. But he had substantial contacts with the Emiratis and through the Emiratis with the Saudis. So he would have been, and we now have seen emails from him in which he, we've even seen editorials from him actually, public editorials, in which he's talking about this grand bargain. So he would have been a possible conduit for Donald Trump to say, look, you should talk to this guy. Um, But you also have to know that Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is close friends with Benjamin Netanyahu himself, the Israeli prime minister. And Netanyahu wanted this deal. So that's another means by which Donald Trump, who had really put Jared Kushner in front of a lot of his national security um, issues as soon as his campaign started in June 2015, Kushner might have said, Flynn's a good guy to talk to. He just went to Israel. He impressed a lot of people there with his big ideas. And so there's every reason to think that when Trump meets with Flynn in August 2015, it's to discuss this grand bargain and to adopt it as his foreign policy. And in so adopting it, he induced not just the Russians, but the Saudis and the Emiratis, and the Israelis to illegally aid his campaign so that he, the one presidential candidate who could make this grand bargain happen, would be elected president of the United States.
0: Yeah, and of course, Russia, who started getting compromise on Trump, who knows how many decades ago, and then the, the meeting in 2013, they also saw an opportunity to get their sanctions dropped, which is Putin's number one goal in life, right, is to is to get these sanctions, these US sanctions dropped, uh, and obviously to repeal the Magnitsky Act. So we have that too. And, and do you think, and this is just an opinion,
1: uh, a question here, but do you think maybe Jamal Khashoggi was onto this? Well, I would say this because I do write a a lot about him uh, in Proof of Conspiracy. Uh, I I take what happened to him his kidnapping, his uh, execution, his dismemberment, his incineration. It is a a gory and terrifying and horrifying and tragic story. I take that primarily as a sign of how close the Trump administration and the Trump family had become to the uh, autocratic. Um, cruel and despotic Saudi royal family's leadership and the Saudi royal family itself. By the time of the uh, the fall of uh, 2018, which is when these events happened um, to this Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, um, I, I don't know whether that's what he was working on. I think his his editorials for the Washington Post show that he was primarily focused. On the slow, perhaps not so slow, descent of Saudi Arabia into the status of being an autocratic state, uh, a police state run by a despot, and I think that was his focus. But but I will say that he was originally um, forbidden from the practice of journalism in Saudi Arabia because of his criticism of Donald Trump and the criticism he had of Donald Trump, which implicitly was a criticism of the Saudi royal family and Mohammed bin Salman's. Um, close relationship and growing relationship with Donald Trump, the criticism he had is this sort of relationship that these two men are developing doesn't make sense with respect to Syria and what they want to do in Syria if you're going to counter Iran. And one of the points that I make in Proof of Conspiracy is that the reason uh, Jamal Khashoggi would have had that particular criticism. Um, and frankly, that anyone would have had that criticism, is because most people didn't have any information about the grand bargain. And so it looked like the arrangements that Donald Trump had with Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the the head of Saudi Arabia, um, the, the leader of the kingdom, it looked like the arrangements they had really wouldn't be a very effective way of building a coalition to counter Iran. What would make it effective is if you knew that as part of a grand bargain, they were going to be dropping sanctions on Russia to get Russia on board with the plan they had for eventually toppling the regime in Tehran. And so I don't know how far Jamal Khashoggi had gotten in breaking down the fact that there was a grand bargain, but his criticism certainly exposed the fact that you had to get more information about what Trump and MBS had agreed to for it to make any sense. And so his work would have opened the door for some really difficult questions being asked.
0: Yeah, and certainly Trump's response to it uh, and his, you know, ignoring of his uh, duties under the Magnitsky Act to uh, come to a conclusion within 120 days of being uh, asked by Congress to do so. He just let that date pass him by. I think that that all speaks to uh, the teamwork that's going on behind the scenes as well.
1: Well, can I make a a comment actually about uh, Russian sanctions, which we've mentioned a number of times? Um, Sometimes people will ask me, what is the association between the grand bargain, what you're talking about now involving these six nations uh, and the Trump family and the Trump campaign? What's the association between that and the Trump Tower Moscow deal that Donald Trump was working on with Andrei Rozov and signed a letter of intent uh, in the fall of 2015? And, And the answer is sort of a pretty simple one actually, um, Russian intelligence, like many intelligence agencies, uh, builds in redundancies to its intelligence activities if it wants a particular end it's going to try to achieve that end if it can through multiple people and through multiple means because you know that not every pathway you follow down as an intelligence agent is going to work it's not always going to you know bring fruit ultimately in the end so yes, there was an attempt to directly convince Donald Trump to simply drop sanctions on Russia over its annexation of Crimea using business deals. There's no question that that occurred. Simultaneously, there was a more Byzantine and complex, and frankly, you could argue less favorable to Russia, plan that Putin was working on, and that was this grand bargain. But while it might have been less lucrative for Russia, because it would drop sanctions, but it would also require them to pull back on their relationship with the Iranians, while you might say it was less lucrative, it also had a much higher chance of success because of the fact that it made sense for, in a very public way, everyone who was involved in it. There was even a means under the grand bargain for the Trump administration to say, this benefits America. We can solve the uh, Iranian terror problem, as they would have framed it. We can solve the Israel-Palestine crisis. We can solve our problems and our tensions with the the Russians by doing this. So there was a way to sell it to the American people that didn't exist with the Trump Tower Moscow deal. That was just naked bribery. And it was bribery, and bribery is an impeachable offense, and Donald Trump should be impeached for having been bribed for his foreign policy over Trump Tower Moscow. But Robert Mueller didn't look at that, and I'll put that aside for a moment. Um, But that really wasn't going to fly, that sort of a quid pro quo with the American people. The grand bargain could be dressed up as being in the U.S. uh, in in America's interest in a way that the Trump Tower Moscow deal couldn't. And it was essentially a redundancy that the Kremlin had built in to get its way on sanctions.
0: Yeah, like an insurance policy. All right. Is there anything else we should be paying attention to uh, before we let you go today? Anything else um, that uh, I I know I was going to ask you uh, how the August 3rd Uh, meeting fits into this. Uh, I know that when we had you on last time during uh, December during our season finale, you had said probably the most uh, consequential story to break in in 2018, Uh, even though this meeting happened before that, the story broke in 2018. Was that August 3rd meeting? And I was wondering if you could maybe just uh, let everybody know how that sort of fits into this grand bargain.
1: Oh, absolutely. Because it it fits into it in a a very significant way. And I, I would stand by that earlier statement that the most significant meeting between the Trump campaign and foreign nationals did not occur in early June of 2016. It was on August 3rd of 2016. But one thing I'll just note before I get to August 3rd is uh, a major event that's talked about in the Oversight Committee report is this May 26th energy speech that Donald Trump gives in North Dakota. And prior to that speech, so really in the four weeks between the Mayflower event, where Bud McFarlane we should be very clear, Bud McFarlane goes to the Mayflower speech as a VIP on April 26th. He is running IP3, which is the company that ACU morphed into. So Bud McFarlane is really in charge on the business end of this Saudi nuclear deal. He goes to the Mayflower VIP event that all the principals are at, uh, Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn, on April 26th. Four weeks later, Donald Trump gives a speech in North Dakota on energy on May 26th. And what happens between the Mayflower event and that energy speech on May 26th, 2016, is a lot of conversations between Thomas Barrack and Emirati agents, agents of the Emirati government, about how to ensure that now that Donald Trump is really going to drill down on his energy policy, which of course is what this Saudi nuclear deal is all about, that he delivers a speech that is consistent with what I call the the Red Sea conspirators, what they want to see happen in terms of the Saudi nuclear deal. And Paul Manafort assures Thomas Barrick that the language that Barrick wants in and that the Emiratis want into that energy speech will get into that speech. And that's what happens. But, you know, I I just realized um, that I did not yet before I get to, to August 3rd, I didn't yet talk about why I call this the Red Sea conspiracy and what this book, Proof of Conspiracy, really starts with on page one. And it's an event that many of your listeners will not have heard of because it was only reported as an exclusive by the top Middle East watchdog in the United Kingdom, a media outlet known, uh, which is called uh, the Middle East Eye. And this was a story by David Hurst and Dania Akkad, two top journalists. Uh, David Hurst had previously been an editor with The Guardian. And what they reported uh, over a year ago was that in October or November of 2015, so this is 2015 now, well over a year before the election, there is a meeting on a yacht in the Red Sea where future Trump foreign policy advisor George Nader, who now is in jail as uh, he's previously been convicted of pedophilia, he's now in jail on new charges relating to pedophilia, but he's a Trump campaign advisor. He gathers together the leaders of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates on a yacht in the Red Sea in October, November of 2015, and they decide that there is only one presidential candidate who can ensure that what they want to see happen in U.S. foreign policy happens, which by that point is this grand bargain, this Saudi nuclear deal we're we're talking about. And the one presidential candidate who they decide to assist at this meeting is Donald Trump. So as of October, November 2015, you have assent among three of the nations that we've been talking about, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates, to illegally assist Donald Trump in being uh, elected. Fast forward now to August 3rd of 2016, and that's the day on which agents of the Israeli government, the Saudi government, and the Emirati government including George Nader, who has regularly been making trips to Moscow to the Kremlin, come to Trump Tower and explicitly, this is a report from the New York Times, explicitly offer to the Trump campaign in the person of Donald Trump Jr. at Trump Tower, the assistance of the Saudi government, the Israelis, and the Emiratis to ensure that Donald Trump is elected. And according to the New York Times, Donald Trump Jr. responds approvingly Now, what people may wonder is, okay, the Saudis, the Israelis, and the Emiratis can make this offer in early August of 2016, but what actually happens? And the answer is, we know what happens. The Israeli agent who is at that meeting, his name is Joel Zammel. He's an Israeli business intelligence expert who was introduced to the Trump campaign by a member of Benjamin Netanyahu's office. Joel Zammel later says to George Nader, who's also at that meeting, as well as Stephen Miller and Eric Prince... Zamel says to George Nader after the election, "I ran an entire disinformation campaign in the United States, and we know from other reporting that that disinformation campaign was funded by the Saudis and the Emiratis, consistent with the offer they made to Donald Trump jr. in August of two thousand sixteen Moreover, we know that AMI and David pecker, and people will be stunned that they are part of this story as well, uh, because we know about the hush payments that AMI made to women." To ensure that they wouldn't tell their story publicly and that Donald Trump wouldn't lose his opportunity to be elected president. AMI did not feel that it had the money to pay off these women, particularly Karen McDougall, in August of 2016, until suddenly, immediately after the Saudis offered monetary assistance to the Trump campaign, suddenly AMI had enough money to pay these women. Now, you might say there's no connection there between AMI And Saudi Arabia, but in fact, guess who David Pecker was trying to go into business with at that very moment? MBS, the ruler of Saudi Arabia, and so we have two clear instances where the Saudis and the Emiratis, and frankly Israeli agents, make good on their offer to assist the Trump campaign illegally prior to election day, and we know why they were doing it because they were part of this grand bargain. And who else was very busy in August of 2016? Paul Manafort who was meeting privately and secretly with Rick Gates and Konstantin Kalimnik, an agent of the GRU and what was he negotiating sanctions dropping sanctions another necessary part of the grand bargain the story is very clear we know who the nations were that were involved we know who their agents were we know what they wanted we know what they were negotiating we know how they helped the Trump campaign we know that that help was illegal we know that that help had an effect we know that that uh, all of these events have been investigated by counterintelligence. And we need now to see that report so that all this can be revealed to the American people.
0: Yeah. And of course, we also have um, the AMI, uh, Pecker and Howard of, of AMI, putting out that, uh, you know, new princes and great leadership in the amazing new Saudi Arabia, the great new Middle East to this whole magazine issue dedicated solely to um, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, MBS and MBZ. And then, of course, we have Pecker uh, and AMI breaking their non-prosecution agreement in the hush money payment uh, investigation by trying to blackmail Bezos um, regarding some of, you know, that whole situation. So everything like, you know, just like you said, everything that anyone has done that, we, that we've reported on, you've reported on, all makes sense when looked at or filtered through the lens of the, the Red Sea conspiracy and the Grand Bargain.
1: Well, you know, and you always look for the lies as an investigator or as a prosecutor. You mentioned that glossy, expensive propaganda magazine that uh, David Pecker and AMI published that was solely intended to bolster MBS's reputation in the United States. Every single aspect of the production of that propaganda by Trump's friend David Pecker was lied about by David Pecker and AMI. They lied about every single aspect who paid for it, who looked at it beforehand. Why did it come out? Was it lucrative for them? Or was it something they did for other consideration that we don't know about? Every aspect was lied about because it clearly, from the outside looking in, an investigator would conclude it was part of a quid pro quo between the Saudis and Trump's friend Pecker and his company AMI. And that quid pro quo didn't just start in 2017 and 2018 when you're seeing these business deals between Pecker and MBS, and you're seeing investment by MBS in places where AMI wants to see it, and you're seeing this glossy propaganda magazine. That quid pro quo began in August of 2016 when the Saudis offered help to the Trump campaign, but everyone knew that that help was not going to be the wiring of money from MBS to the Trump campaign. That's not how this works. What was going to happen, and what did happen, is that the Saudis, the Israelis, and the Emiratis tried to figure out How can we provide value that benefits the Trump campaign indirectly without directly giving money to the Trump campaign? The problem is the moment the Trump campaign has knowledge that this aid is being given on its behalf through in-kind donations, you have a conspiracy to violate election law.
0: Absolutely. And this story is far from over. Uh, Everybody check out the House Oversight Report on the Middle East Marshall Plan that's just come out. And pick up your copies of Proof of Collusion and Proof of Conspiracy wherever you get your books. Seth Abramson, thanks so much for coming back on The Muller She Wrote.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by AG and Jordan Coburn, and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by AG, Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com.